Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Joining us this week on the Garden DC podcast is Marianne Wilburn, a returning guest and author of two garden books now, right, Marianne? That's right. Uh, I have just uh, finished the last little uh, amendments to the index of my newest book, Tropical Plants and How to Love Them. And hello, Kathy. <laughs> Yay! So I'm sure you're happy to have it off into the publisher. And it's coming out next spring. It is coming out March 9th. Oh, great. I was going to say, is it available for for pre-order yet? It very much is. It very much is. And uh, you can do that either through uh, Cordo's site, which will send you to uh, different, wherever you want to go, Waterstones, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or you can go straight to Amazon. It's there and uh, it's, Yes, it's gonna, it's very exciting, and it, and it's a huge weight off your shoulders when you can say, okay, that has gone now. Now is, I'm in this uh, this period where it, it's not it hasn't hit the stands, but it's done. So it's a great feeling. So the the baby has been birthed. Yes, right. and that was a lot more labor <laughs> than I'm used to uh, with my babies, and they were they, they were hard. So. <laughs> <laughs> So for loyal listeners of the Garden DC podcast, Marianne was our first ever guest. We talked about the Philadelphia Flower Show this year, and then we had you back this summer to talk about summer cocktails and had a little fun with that. And then I thought for our uh, last episode of this season uh, for 2020 that we talk about Latin and labels. Yes, because I'm a big proponent of using both. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to make the case for them. <laughs> so I, I probably don't need much convincing myself, but maybe when I was a beginning gardener, I would thought, uh, first of all, why do I need to know Latin? Yes, well, I would uh, say I have three main reasons why, and a fourth bonus reason, if three aren't enough for you. And I put it down to communicating and about your plants, being able to source the right plant and cultivating your plants and knowing how to cultivate them. And the last little bonus category is understanding your plant through clues in the name, just sort of like a bonus. You can find out a little bit about a plant based on on, on little clues in its name. Uh, but in terms of communication, that's that's what we do, right? We love to talk about plants. And you can do that with regional names. And regional names are wonderful. They, they usually have some folklore in them. They've been handed down through many, many generations. And they often tell us what the plant did for, for you, like bladderwort. Uh, I, I've never thought about using epimedium in, in ailments of the bladder, but um, 
<laughs> but uh, they can tell you a lot about the plant, but they are different. They're regional. So your name in Washington, D.C. for a plant may be very different than that same plant, even two or three hours south, much less a continent away. And so using the true name of a plant can allow you to communicate with others about it because cultivar names won't help. I mean, how many, how many names do you, how many cultivars uh, are named limelight? Do you think if you had to, you know, if you just thought, Oh, well, I just know the cultivar mm -hmm. name limelight. It's the, that hydrangea. Well, you could get, I'm trying to think you could get a, a Dracaena. There's a Dracaena named limelight and there's a Mirabilis named limelight. And I think there's a Banksia named Limelight. So the cultivar names aren't going to help you uh, if you're trying to talk to somebody about plants. Uh, it, you, you need that, uh, that scientific name that allows you to speak the same language with somebody who's maybe speaking Czechoslovakian to you. Uh, and have you ever been in one of those conversations where you're talking at cross purposes about a plant? Oh, for sure. And there's so many common names that are the same, but totally different plants as well. So for instance, bluebells might be one where we we would think of Virginia bluebells in England. They, they have English bluebells or Spanish bluebells. And somebody could just interpret the descriptive term bluebells, you know, as the Texas blue bonnet or many other plants. So yeah, there's been many times that I've been talking about one plant in particular in my mind and then find out later, oh, that's not what they're talking about. <laughs> they're talking yes. about something completely different. Yes, and I mean, we can waste time on that, you know, long conversations that would be better spent uh, uh, speaking uh, about the plant in general. And you realize, oh, we just talked for five minutes and uh, we're talking about something different. That happened to me in England uh, last year. I was discussing uh, with one of or with the head gardener at Broughton Grange about uh, what we know as garlic mustard here. And you probably know garlic mustard and, and deal with it. It's an invasive plant here. It's in the brassica family. And uh, the actual botanical name of it is Aliaria petiolata. Uh, but we all know it as garlic mustard. It's just a weed. Well, it was on display in a couple different gardens that looked otherwise well weeded. And so I think on the third garden, I asked the, the head gardener about it. And we went back and forth. He said, oh, it's a rampant weed and it's in all our shady areas and you know, and it has that strong smell. And, and then he said something about if it just, you know, if it wasn't for the bulbs reproducing themselves so quickly, I think we could get on top of it a little easier. And I thought, wait hmm. a minute, what you talking about, Willis? That's exactly what I thought. Wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. Uh, there are no bulbs in garlic mustard. And so I walked him over to the plant that I was talking about. And he said, oh, no, no, no. That's, uh, that's Jack by the Hedge. And... I said, uh, okay, <laughs> what, what are you talking about? And so he took me over to a big stand of, of what I would think were ramps, Allium uh, trichotum in, in this country, but were actually uh, Allium uh, ursinum in the UK. And he was thinking, because I was talking about garlic, and it's a wild, they, they sometimes call it wild garlic. He thought I was talking about that plant. So we wasted each other's time for 
almost 10 minutes before we figured out what we were discussing. Uh, so, you know, communication, not just between countries, but in, in different regions. And I think ferns are one of the biggest ones. I, there's so many different southern ferns or river ferns or this fern or that fern. And it just allows us to communicate uh, a okay. lot better. I do love the Jack by the Hedge name. So I was just Googling around and I found a ton of folklore around Jack by the Hedge. <laughs> that's such a wonderful name. And that's kind of why common names do persist a lot is because they're more memorable sometimes. Yeah. I know that trying to scratch my brain sometimes for that botanical Latin name that starts with a C <laughs> between yeah. Colchicum and all the other ones that start with C are, it's crazy. And, and, you know, uh, normally the weeds in my garden, very few of the weeds get their proper names uh, spoken around here. And that's why I always think of garlic mustard as garlic mustard. I don't really take the time usually with weeds. Um, but my my regular plants, my everyday plants, I very much think of them mostly in Latin, sometimes bilingually as well. The the second reason I get into before we continue to talk about communication is sourcing your plants. And I, I, I am really excited to say, I think there is an uptick in the amount of people who are using botanical Latin because of the houseplant craze. And mm -hmm. you have probably seen that in action in the city. Um, so many people using new houseplants and they want to make sure they get exactly what they want and so i'm seeing a lot more use of of plants and you know online on instagram uh in different social media sites with proper names on them because yeah it, you would often find when you would go to a store that it would just say um you know peace lily and, and that would be it or you know, elephant ear. And that's, that's as much as you'll get on a tag. If even that, sometimes I'll even have generic tags that literally say houseplant. On them. Yeah, oh yeah. 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 <laughs> or uh, yeah, low light. It'll, it'll exactly. give you something like And it's that. just a skew. It's just a skew number for a big box seller. So um, it's great to, to be able to see actual actual plant descriptions and tags. Not that I always believe the plant tags, you know, is out there people do move tags around and and things do happen and sometimes there's errors in tags yeah but i i have definitely seen that evolution myself with specifically with house plants where it's gone from being a house plant or a devil's ivy to actually saying epipremnum aureum or or just you know even just epipremnum but the fact that that generic name is there is huge that I mean that's really big so I'm really glad to see that if I mean if you walk into a a showroom to get a, a for you for a car and you really want a Tesla Model Y um, if you ask to see the electric cars that's not going to get you what you want right so it's it's great to start off with the name of what you actually want and the third reason that I give is, is cultivation, because if you lump a bunch of plants in under a certain group, say elephant ears, 
they're not necessarily going to all behave the same way to the conditions that you give them. And you may be doing them an injustice by treating them the same way. And one of the best examples of that is elephant ear, which can be colocasia, it can be alocasia, it can be xanthosoma, burgenia, uh, caladium. And if you take if you if you sort of push burgenia and, and caladium aside and you just look at alocasia and, and colocasia and xanthosoma, these behave very, very differently to uh, to your conditions. For instance, colocasia usually generally likes a wetter soil. Uh, it loves to be in in boggy margins in in a pond situation. It generally really loves full sun or you know, as much as you can give it. Alocasia is very different. It, it is um, happier usually in the shade. There are a few that are, are just fine in, in full sun, but a lot of them do real well in the shade. It's, it's very sturdy and it doesn't like to be overwatered. If you give it wet feet, it's not going to be happy. And xanthosoma is, uh, I think of it somewhere in between there. And I, I remember this last year because these three plants emerge from dormancy. I grow a lot of all three of them and they emerge from dormancy very differently. And if you put that, that little corm or, or bulb into the soil for all three plants at the same exact time, they emerge much in very different uh, times. So your colocasia comes right up your xanthosoma sort of after that, and your alocasia is way behind. So plants behave differently just because they're elephant ears as a regional name or you know a pretty popular name across the continents actually does not mean they are the same plant. And it helps to know how they're related or not related actually to each other. Yes. I mean, in, in the case of colocasia and alocasia, I think it's just ovarian differences, really. But <laughs> they do. I mean, there's other things as well, but but it, it does help to know those things. It just it you know, the next time you get uh, a new colocasia cultivar, you might say, OK, well, probably I can treat it this way based on how I've treated treated other uh, colocasia in the past, but you couldn't say that just generally as elephant ears. You might be in a lot of trouble with that. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it can be really, really helpful. And the last, that sort of bonus category, uh, bonus reason is, is just clues. They, the Latin name will give you clues to the plant often. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's completely crazy and you think, I will never get my brain around this word. Uh, but sometimes, it, you know, once you, you, you realize a specific uh, word means something, then you can look out for other ones like um, ajuga, repen, or reptans. And reptans means creeping uh, and sometimes rooting. And that ajuga reptans is bugleweed. And so if you come along and you see trifolium, repens, which doesn't have that T in there, but it's also very similar, you might, your brain might go, wait a minute, I wonder if that means that it creeps along the ground, and it does, trifolium repens is uh, white clover. Mm -hmm. So it's little, um, it's little clues like that, hirsutus being uh, yeah. hairy. Mm -hmm. 
I was even going to say that even that first part of the name trifolium, tri, three, folium, leaf. Yeah. Figure that out. It's a, a three leaf plant that creeps along the ground. Yes. And I sure wish they were all that easy, you know, mm-hmm. because when you, when you see it that easy, it helps to mem- memorize it. It really does. But they're not. You know, botanical <laughs> Latin is made up of uh, a lot of Latin, but it's also made up of a lot of Greek. And mm-hmm. most of us hardly get Latin in school, much less Greek. Uh, so we're at a bit of a disadvantage. And then you have about maybe 30, 40% of it that is, that are common, not common names, but, um, uh, proper names or named after, yeah, either they're named after, uh, where the plant was discovered. So something with Virginica Mm -hmm. as the epithet, or they're named after the person, uh, who either discovered it or was in honor of, or just vaguely reminded them of (laughs) this person (laughs) and it helps to know the story behind it then you can kind of remember the name after that once you know the story. Yes, or go hunting for that person's name in other places. You know, when it mm-hmm. comes up, you're, oh, oh, right. Wasn't he that Scottish explorer? And, you know, sort of things plant nerds think about a lot. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and speaking of plant nerds, there is a great deal of pushback as a culture against using botanical Latin because it sort of makes you a plant nerd or it makes you who do you think you are using this fancy schmancy language? Um, and I really do push back against that because I think there there should be no time where we're trying to educate on our, ourselves on something that we should be um, made fun of for that. I, I you know I tend to be uh, I tend to stand up for academia, but I think it's really, really important. And it, when it can help your gardening game, don't you want to learn more? Uh, and if you're going out looking for special plants, you want to know what they are. Mm-hmm. Or you sign that PayPal, or you don't sign it. I'm in two different, got a mixed <laughs> metaphor there. I, I had PayPal. I was technologically uh, savvy there, but you don't sign it. Before you receipt. send that Venmo payment <laughs> out. Yep. <laughs> not anymore usually so yeah I do think there's a huge intimidation factor and there's obviously a learning curve to it um, and there are the few plants people who wield botanical Latin as a weapon agreed agreed and you know I have gotten to a place now in in my career and in, in my life where I just I can find that funny and I can stand back from it. But there certainly was a, was a time, and it wasn't too long ago, where it really was very intimidating. And especially because I came from a rural high school. Uh, we didn't even have an auditorium, much less Latin offered. We were lucky we had Spanish and French. And so I am at a disadvantage. I'm learning from the ground up, basically. And Latin is a complicated language, and botanical Latin becomes even more uh, complicated because it's got all those other languages in there. Uh, But it is not impossible, and the more you think in it, the more you recognize your plants in it, it's like any language. You start to think in it. Uh, And it's, it's, it's just worth doing and that should keep you moving forward and just close your ears to the to close your ears to the snobs in most things in life right Kathy mm-hmm. 
Yeah. You know, in my <laughs> I would say if, if somebody is lording their botanical Latin over you, uh, move along. <laughs> move along. <laughs> Maybe yeah. that's not the person you want to be talking to. Yeah. And I mean, I think that this is really true. I think a lot of people feel okay maybe writing down a name, but they feel very worried about saying it out loud. Pronunciation is the biggest, oh my God, I'm going to mess this up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and it's scary when you're around plant people. Uh, who all often disagree about how to speak something. And there are two different ways of pronouncing, uh, I was about to say pronouncing, that would be funny, (laughs) Uh, pronouncing uh, uh, the language. And that's the traditional English pronunciation, which is used by gardeners and botanists. And then there's this, uh, I think they call it the restored academic pronunciation. And that is what academics feel and uh, scholars feel that the actual sounds of the language were were as spoken by the Romans. And I don't know how they figured that out. I, I, <laughs> I guess they have. And then there's the third way, which is uh, ecumenical Latin, church Latin, who those of us who didn't have Latin in school, that might be the only way that we have had have been in touch with Latin and that that pronunciation is different too um so it is it is um very intimidating and we all murder the language but I think the whole point is just to be able to be make yourself understood and just as you would not if somebody came up to you in a thick French accent and tried to pronounce something you wouldn't immediately say uh, uh, what are you saying? I can't, you know, I can't understand you or, or be mean about it or try and correct them in a mean way. Don't do that. If you're, if you're knowledgeable in Latin and you're trying to help somebody else, don't, don't help them that way. Help them gently. Uh, and don't be afraid to be a little helped here and there. Uh, but it, it's intimidating. I, I hear you. But I hate it when I hear, when I know that people are just intimidated by the pronunciation. And so consequently, they push the whole thing aside and say, it's snobby. It's not for me. I, I, sh- I, I don't want to, I don't want to even try. I don't need all that. I can, I can grow it. I don't need to speak it uh, mm-hmm. because they're, because they're missing out. And there are tools to help. There are pronunciation guides online. I've, I've entered um, names into them and they'll have various pronunciations. Like it'll usually be a man's wo- voice, a woman's voice, and then um, British English versus American English, of course, oh, with yeah. slight, slight differences. And usually they're spelled out phonetically, but I would say if you've taken a little Spanish or you know some Spanish, that, that can get you a, a little way towards it. Yeah, and if, if you realize that every vowel in Latin is pronounced, um, that can help you. There's the, a lot of times all it is, all you might be having trouble is, is the emphasis that you're putting on the right syllable. And after a while, when you're speaking to other people, you start to learn. It is clematis, not clematis, and, and that can change it. But it doesn't really matter because if you say clematis, I know you're saying clematis. I know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, exactly. You know, it, that's the point. We want to be able to communicate. And so 
So you snobby people who just want to make fun of my pronunciation. Boy, I'm, I, you can make fun of me all day long because I, I murder it a lot of times. And, and I don't want to murder it. I want to get better. And I certainly will take, um, I will take gentle reminders. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you're going to weaponize it, I suddenly have a problem with you. <laughs> yeah, and there's all, always ones that we're deliberately almost pronouncing incorrectly, like Clivia is actually Clivia yes. after Lord Clive. Uh, but we've all agreed, uh, we, the general plant nuts, <laughs> have decided mm-hmm. we're going to say Clivia. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, don't let pronunciation bother you. Just listen to people, and if you have a question, ask. And you, like you said, there's pronunciation guides online. And also one of the guides that I want to tell people about that has just recently come out and has what they call an English respelling pronunciation guide uh, is Ross Bainton's new book, The Gardener's Botanical, which is not only just a wealth of knowledge, it's also a very beautiful book. And if you are serious about getting serious, uh, this is a terrific place to start. Uh, it has about 5,000 different entries, uh, different botanical ter- Latin terms, and it gives you not only the etymology of the word, you know, is it Greek, is it Latin, uh, but it gives you the definition of it. It also gives you that English respelling pronunciation, which is um, basically it's a phonetic, a very, very basic English phonetic uh, translation, or not translation, interpretation, um, pronunciation, uh, where you don't have to know all of those mm-hmm. very weird Sounds, uh, signs that we all had to learn in second grade and third grade, and we don't yes. anymore. Yes, I don't remember. And I was going to say, I just pulled out my copy, and I'm trying to balance it on my lap along with a purring cat. And this is being very difficult right here. Right. <laughs> but we gave it uh, in Washington Gardener magazine. We gave it a glowing review, and I highly recommend it as a gift for yourself, maybe for the holidays and for gardening friends. It's it's a substantial book. It is an encyclopedia of, of botanical latin basically um but you know coffee table size but still a reference you want to have next to you and i just flipped it open to what i consider one of the hardest names to pronounce that everybody always stumbles over and it's wygela ah. it is not i just happened to flip over to that one and that is the one that i hear mangled so many times and i'm sure i've mangled it innumerable times but the spelling uh if you're not familiar with it out there is w-e-i-g-e-l-a and they have phonetically translated it as capital y capital w y dash j u h dash l u h so y jilla that's is right how you're, they're pronounce it you're you're that that capital letter tells you that your emphasis should be on that syllable y jilla yeah and the funny thing is it's named after a german scientist and i can 100 percent guarantee you that is not how he pronounced his name oh <laughs> that, yeah <laughs> that uh johan weigel <laughs> was not how he said his name <laughs> <laughs> yes. And that, I think that's why this guide is so good. And, and I've looked at a lot of guides over the years is because it's not dry as dust. It's and it's a very beautiful book, lots of botanical illustrations in it. 
Um, and it also has uh, plant profiles for some really, really popular plants, as well as uh, some thoughts about the DNA analysis of plants that, that are the taxonomists are determined to keep uh, kicking us as we, as we learn these names. Yeah, um, that's, that's my biggest, uh, I would say, stumbling block to botanical Latin is once you've learned the damn name, <laughs> then, they go, then, they, then they up and change it on you. And you're like, I finally got that down. And now you're going to change it on me. And you know what? It, I'm not going to uh, switch Dicentra. <laughs> I'm just right. not. And I think it feels like that's happening all the time, but it's actually not happening all the time. There's just, there are some really big genera out there that have been changed that are really popular. And so it, it, it feels like, like Dicentra uh, became Lampricopnos, right? If I'm remembering yeah. correctly. And Coleus, that's another one where I'm like, I uh, know it's yeah. Coleus for life. I'm going to you know go what? to the grave. It's going to be like, she planted Coleus. <laughs> Yeah, and, and Coleus in particular, because it's switched three times as far as, I think oh, it's three tell times. Me about it's gone it. to Scutelloides and it was, uh, now it's Plectranthus. Mm -hmm. So yes, that could annoy people. I get it. And as I said in my recent book, this is why taxonomists have a hard time getting garden party invites. Uh, because we're all annoyed <laughs> with them. Um, yeah, I think that's how they guarantee their employment. Because <laughs> otherwise, yeah. I mean, uh, and, yeah. And I, I was talking to John Bogan about this, who's at DC Tropics, and he is a botanist. And we were discussing this last week, actually. And he said a lot of these names are actually a, a lot of these plants are actually going back into the groups that they started in that uh, the mm. that the botanists wandering around different continents in the 18th and 19th centuries actually placed them in. And it turns out that they were related the way they thought they were related. And, and so some of these are actually going back to old names, which is interesting, but not every single plant's going to change. And I, and another thing that John told me was that these will still be accepted names. If you say Dicentra, it's not as if Dicentra suddenly disappears. It doesn't anyway, because it's it's referring, you know, there's still Dicentra eczema, but Dicentra spectabilis is now Lampicopnos spectabilis. So it's not as if that's just going to disappear. I, I will always know what you're saying if you say Dicentra. It's just been part of the lexicon for, t for so long. Mm -hmm. I just feel like, you know, I'm, I'm going to be one of those old ladies that calls CVS people's <laughs> for, the, for the next three decades. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I, I, some of these I've gotten very used to. One of them I have not. Um, the one that's Aster. What did Aster turn into? Sympo Sympotrochum? No. Like Symphonia? Like it's S-Y-M-P-H, like symphony. Okay, yes. It's, um, you, you know what, uh, Eupatorium, Joe Pieweed went to Eutrochum. And that I've got that one down, but I don't have the aster one down. So what we're doing right now, Kathy, is we're getting people to not ever want to touch Latin. So we need <laughs> yeah, to I was going to say we're. I don't think we're selling it here, Marianne. <laughs> no, we're not. And and the fact that we can laugh about it now, people really think we're geeks. Um, yeah, we, that, that we're finding humor in this. It's even worse. Well, and one of my uh, favorite. Um, 
gifts for gardeners are those funny Latin plant tags that we are think are so uproarious, you know, like expensivus plantius. Yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> or, is a good one. Or there's ones for anonymous, like you never knew the name of them, which are, you know, definitely bastardized botanical Latin, but some some fun ones there. And if you if you just made up a name, most people wouldn't know. No, they wouldn't. Um, and and because of the way that human beings work, they wouldn't really want to challenge you on it either. And, let, it, <laughs> so, and I, I, I still go back to um, something I read many years ago that the very well-known garden writer Christopher Lloyd at his garden at Great Dixter, when he would go abroad or go and visit other gardens and a name would not come to his mind, he said the best way to do it was just to sort of nudge it with your foot and say, what are they calling this these days? You know, and and, uh-huh. and, the, and then you, then it's, uh, you know, it could have changed. I don't know. And uh, I thought, I think that's brilliant. So if you ever hear me say that, you know that I've gone completely blank up in my upper store. <laughs> no, I know your, know your trick. And it, it only works once per garden, though. Once don't, per don't. garden and <laughs> once per gardener, yeah. Yeah, don't try that too many times. That's right. But. The great thing is we have this handy computer in our pockets now, our smartphones, and we can we can take a picture and put it up to a plant ID group on Facebook and we can ask. Yes. And of course, if we're in a public garden, um, there are labels galore usually, uh, most public gardens, although some public gardens have a, have a no label policy and they might just have a plant list that you can refer to. So I was going to say this might be a good transition to talk about labeling. Um, and a lot of people refer to them as plant markers. Yes. Um, the garden you're referring to that makes a point of not labeling their plants is of course, Chanticleer, uh, the absolutely gobsmackingly beautiful garden up in Wayne, Pennsylvania. It's not too far from Longwood. And uh, they consider the garden to be a piece of artwork and ever-changing. And they don't, I, I think the idea behind it is they don't want you focusing on the name tags. They want you absorbing the, what they have created. Mm-hmm. There. Just the experience. The which experience. Is, is how you should go into a garden. And that's a very native american philosophy as well is that you don't have to name everything you don't have to know everything you can just be and and just experience and you know and i think that that is such a nice sentiment (laughs) however yeah however my crazy brain the first thing that i i remember the very first time i ever went to chanticleer as you came into the teacup garden uh the teacups were interplanted with uh black tie uh, Musa. And I, it was so stunning. I, it was just beyond stunning. And the first thing I wanted to know is what is that banana? What is that banana? And I, I looking everywhere, can't find it. And I didn't know at the time that they had, uh, that they had uh, plant lists for every garden. So you can go and find one. Uh, and I wouldn't rest until I found out from one of our members who grows a lot of tropicals what it was. Uh, so unfortunately, it doesn't work as well for me as as it might, and and I know that that's mm-hmm. true for a lot of people. You you want to create these things at home, uh, but I I I fully understand why they do it, and I think it's a great idea uh, overall. Um, I go and get the plant list now, and I I scan the plant list. 
Mm-hmm. And I think it also avoids what I call the mouse graveyard look in the off seasons where say your hosta collection just is a bunch of plant markers where they were (laughs) plants there and hopefully you won't um, get them misplaced or somebody trips over a marker and sticks it back in the wrong spot. Um, So plant markers or plant labels aren't entirely infallible. But, you know, it's as good a system as we pretty much have. You can't GPS each individual tiny little plant in your garden. No. Um, and, and, you know, who who would have the money to do that? I, I have recently, over the last three years, been switching over to a, a more permanent label. And, and it's expensive to do that. I can't do it all at once. Um, I have most of my gardening life tried to make do with nothing into I mean, tried to label without spending any money and whether that was cutting up an old set of goodwill blinds from the thrift store and they, which make wonderful labels uh, but they tend to break down uh, fairly quickly and they're not that attractive white labels never really are very attractive mm-hmm. um, and also for me uh, anything that's white in the garden, the guinea hens or the chickens, if if the chickens get out, they'll pull them right up immediately. So I have no chance of keeping them very close to where the, the plant actually is. Yeah, and the white popping up every once in a while can look like a bunch of like dirty tissues were strewn about as well. Yeah, so the, the plant labels that I use now are uh, Kincaid labels, and they are made of stainless steel, and they come in lengths. You can do 10 or 12 inches, and they're separate. You have the, the tag at the top, and then you have the, the stake that goes into the ground. And I, I um, in long winter evenings, uh, when, I'm, uh, when I'm watching television, I will sit there with my little brother label maker, my little P-Touch, and make these labels that stick onto there. And they last for years. And I came I came to this way of labeling my plants because of friends of mine who have a world-class garden down in Carrollton, Virginia. And that's what they use. And she breeds daylilies. So she really needs to know what is there and it needs to go down into the ground so it doesn't get removed or or moved and their labels have have held out for years and the and the wonderful thing is you can always just razor blade that that uh, label off and you can put another label on and and I actually I'm I'm enough of a geek that I I so enjoy sitting there and just looking up the spelling again and remembering that plant, I'll make a big list and then I'll, I'll put all the labels together at night and then in the morning take my coffee and go put these labels in the ground. It's, it's ridiculous that I get joy from things like that, but <laughs> I do. And are the labels that you're applying, the, the ribbon label, are they they're rated for outdoor and are they clear with they're like clear. black? Yeah, uh, print on them. Okay, they're yeah. clear with, and I think that the 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 font size is about an eighteen. So mm, that's so pretty you large. Can, you can see it pretty well. Now, the only time these labels get in the way, so to speak, of my eyes is if sun is glinting off of them. And then, so if I'm taking a photo in the garden, uh, I will be on the lookout. Am I seeing any labels in this? And I might take them out for the photo, but. I have a lot of people say, oh, thank you for putting this label. It's, you know, it's easy to see and I can ask real quick and, and I'll forget because I haven't brought a notebook with them. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they are for people to be able to see, but they're also for me because, boy, Kathy, you and I grow a lot of plants. And my little brain is getting older and older, and it's it's not holding on to everything that it held on to even five years ago, and it's only going to get worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I would say, thank goodness for plant labels at public gardens that you can take a picture of or that might even have um, – uh, a symbol that you could click on and get more information, of course, and yeah. then take a picture of the f- the plant itself with it. I mean, I have, you know, cursed under my breath a few times when plant labels have been all throughout a bed and you're trying to take a picture of that whole bed mm-hmm. <laughs> for use and they can get a little in the way there. And of yeah. course, you don't want to re- take them out or replace them or anything like that. But, you know, on the whole, they're definitely beneficial for educational purposes. Yeah. And especially if you're growing, say, a huge amount of different spirea. That's a a great example because I've got a lot of different spirea. There is no way I'm going to remember each and every one of them every single time I look at it. Um, And that label is going to go a long way. And putting, uh, I used to use uh, aluminum labels that you affix to the plant itself and over and over and over again the plant would grow too large for that and it would start to girdle the label uh, or the label would girdle. Yeah, girdle the exactly. And it would dig into the, the bark. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you don't want that either. And of course uh, our, our good friend um, at plants map, Tracy Blevins um, has a completely different way of doing labels uh, so that public gardens, you can sort of QR code them. And it'll mm-hmm. link you to the hive mind and you can find out a whole bunch of stuff about that plant if you come, ac- if come across one of the plants map tags. Um, yeah, so some of the online arboretum, like the U.S. National Arboretum and University of Maryland has it where you can just enter a plant name and then it is GPS. And these are mainly for trees and shrubs that aren't going to be moving around. Um, I have entered annual names into some of those maps and gotten results. And then you go to the garden and they're not there right. <laughs> because they're annuals. But yeah, it's it's a much better system for obviously woody plants. Yeah. And I don't label my annuals. Uh, that would be pointless. Uh, I do make a note of them. I make a note of them in my journal, but I don't I don't label them. And, you know, depending on the plant that I'm dealing with, I sometimes won't label them for a year or so if they've made it through. Echinacea is is one of those uh, genuses that, I, you know, it sometimes it doesn't make it through. Some of all these new cultivars that are out there. Hmm. Um, and if it, it actually gets the label on its second year, that's or second or third year, that's a great echinacea. So um, we're going to, instead of sponge worthy, we're going to call it label worthy. It's label worthy. <laughs> yeah. If, if you it's see a plan. label, it means that I've said, okay, it's, it's here and it's going to be here. That's um, the Marion Wilburn seal of approval sign. <laughs> yeah. so, so for me, I'm the opposite. I do label all my annuals what I usually do if I do a combination planter is take one label each and stick them all together in a discrete spot in the pot yeah I'll do that so that because I know inevitably somebody's going to come up and say point to one of them and say what petunia is that or you know what coleus is that and then in the vegetable garden that's where I'm doing most of my labeling just to keep you know, straight that I have four or five rows of different radishes growing side by side and want to know which radish is which is which. Mm -hmm. 
And sometimes I'll just take the seed packet itself and stick it inside one of those clear um, name tag sleeves you get at conferences Mm -hmm. and put that on a paint stick. And that lasts at least for the season. Um, Otherwise, you know, it's basically using popsicle sticks and cobbled together labels. And for my nicer labels, like the perennials that might be in my vegetable garden, I'm using um, the recycled plastic plant labels that I got from Cobra Head. And those are wonderful. So they're made out of recycled plastic bags, um, like the same system that Trex uses. Ah, okay. Yeah, a lot of these labels can be reused. And I, not just like these are recycled labels to be recycled again, but just like I said, with the blinds, you can do that. I take other plant labels and that I've gotten from plants and cross out something on one side and I've got something on the other. And then nail polish remover, again, if these are for the long, lonely winter evenings, you can just sit there with nail polish remover and just swipe the lab- old labels and, and have them in working shape again. So, hmm. um, there's Yeah, a- and that's a good note about what to write on. So I use a, a grease pencil. Actually, I have to go to the art store now to get the grease pencil to write on these biomarkers. Um, and that lasts forever until you clean it off. Um, but Sharpie fades within a year unless you get this specific Sharpie made for outdoor use. Um, pencil seems to work the best if the surface can be written on with pencil, of course. Yes, I would say that your grease pencil is first, and then below that is a regular uh, graphite pencil, and then below that would be a Sharpie. Um, which doesn't seem to make sense, but it, it, it's true. That, that's the best way to do it. And it, also a pencil allows you to write a lot more on the tag because a Sharpie is so big and clunky. Um, you, you, know, mm-hmm. you, you don't write a lot on the tag. So. And if you have doctor's handwriting like I do, <laughs> then, <laughs> then so almost. You're not trying to make it beautiful, Kathy? Tr- I am trying. <laughs> but if I can at least make out the first couple letters from each name, I can figure it out. <laughs> but I, I always do save either the original label in an album or a bucket um, just to be able to refer to it later. So somewhere indoors. Uh, that does bring up the. Um, what I'm going to call the the plant bucket of shame, which is my <laughs> my bucket of labels of plants that are no longer in my garden, and why I keep this bucket around and these labels um, is just a reminder of I guess how many plants uh, I've killed or have gone by the wayside. Yeah, I I have that same uh, box. I I don't think of it as a box of shame. I've never thought of it that way. I guess it could be. It probably could be. I keep it. It's above head height. So I can't actually see how many are in there at this point, which is uh, probably a good thing. Uh, And anything, what happens is when I'm planting something, usually there's usually two tags with it. And I will take one of those tags um, and I'll throw it into a little Tupperware thing. I It's not Tupperware anymore. Where the heck is it? Just plastic uh, thing that I have in the potting shed. Then I will take that uh, thing when it's getting filled and bring that in the house and make my permanent plant labels from it. Um, and then once I've done that, those plant labels will go into that box of, of shame. I like that box of shame. Um, and and <laughs> yeah. there's, I'm sure, a lot in there that is dead. And, and But it's nice to know that you once planted it because uh-huh. there's nothing worse than walking into a nursery, seeing a plant and thinking, oh, that is fantastic. And then thinking, wait a minute, 
I, I grow that. I bought that. Where the heck is it? You know, like, and you think, oh my gosh, I have, I have no idea. You lost so many plants in, in over the years. So it's nice to remember some of these. It's like going through, um, going through a photo album, right? It's like that. And you know, la uh, labeling your plants, going back to the beginning of our conversation, is one of the best ways of learning uh, your botanical names. And that's certainly the way that I started uh, when I was in a, a, a very small apartment and I had a lot of houseplants and I was determined to learn the right names of them. And so I took post-it notes and I taped the post-it note onto the pot because it was just fall off either other ways, otherwise. And uh, in Sharpie, wrote the name and then I was always looking at it. Sort of the same way that if you're trying to teach a child terms in a foreign language, you label things, everyday objects around the room, and they see that, um, whatever it is, that bed, and they think Lee in, Fr in French or whatever it is. It's the same exact thing. You start to think in it. So then you're looking at a, skin, uh, let's say, an epipremnum instead of a devil's ivy, and it just becomes... Uh, you become bilingual and you don't even know what's happening. Yeah, it kind of does seep into your pores. The, the more, you know, magazines, books, horticultural websites and blogs that you start to read uh, that do use both common and botanical Latin helps a lot. Um, so that, you know, once you've read it 40 times, it kind of seeps in there. <laughs> you don't remember when you learned it, but you learned it. Yes, and that's how the British are so good at this. So some of their most common gardening magazines, which you know aren't even high mucky muck gardening magazines, they talk about these plants in terms of their their botanical names instead of their common names. And they they use both, but they're not they're not trying to dumb it down. And people don't need it dumbed down because they've been referring to them for many years that way. So we need to get with it as a culture. I think. Show those Brits how smart we are. <laughs> yeah, and it, it helps that, you know, it's a culture full of puns and language nuts, too, So because that gives them a whole nother level to um, have some, you know, little witty jabs at each other. Yes. Well, it, it, and to, to help people to get more familiar, not only at the Gardener's Botanical, which, again, great book, if you are at all thinking about, I really want to start digging down get that one first it's just fantastic um but two others one for um one for those who really want to dig down goes into great detail about pronunciation goes into things like the grammar uh the declension things that you know i i i don't think i'm ever going to get there because i i just don't have time but it'll go into greek words in botanical latin it, it has a wonderful vocabulary section and that is the classic uh, stern's botanical latin and i think it's probably on its fifth or fourth uh edition by this point it came out in the late 60s and it it really is a fantastic reference for your library uh, if you if you want to get even more in depth than Gardner's Botanical, and then I have a surprising reference actually that wasn't necessarily about botanical Latin at all, but just mm. does it so well, and that's Eva Monheim's new book, Shrubs and Hedges, and she insisted, bless her heart, 
uh, on putting in, I think there's about 14, 15 pages in the beginning of the book about how to ID plants uh, and units of taxonomy, how to, how to, how shrubs are named. And it goes into modern detail in terms of cultivar names and legal names and things that people are curious about, but they, you know, they don't understand what is the difference between a species and a subspecies? And what's the difference between a form or a variety or a cultivar? And she goes into those in great detail. And she does it as it as she's such a good teacher she does it as a very very good teacher so if you got the if you're not even interested in shrubs and hedges and you just got that book for that it would be worth it mm-hmm. yeah and she was a previous guest on the podcast so if you hadn't listened to that episode definitely go back and, and pick that one up to listen to because she's full of wonderful advice and stories and that one is titled shrubs and hedges and she's recently started her own podcast called plant a trillion trees so check that one out podcast listeners and i was going to recommend another book that might help people and that's how plants get their names by liberty hyde bailey Do, have you oh, read that one marianne yes a long time ago And that kind of is good because it gives you the people behind it. So you can figure out some of those plant explorers that we alluded to and some of those and why plants are named after them, even though it, you know, makes no sense as far as the botanical Latin goes. Yes. And I think that Alan Armitage came out with one, uh, and I have it in my library and I'm trying to remember the name of it exactly. It was about plant legacies um, and the legacies of, of of long names and oh, I have to remember what the name of the book is. Maybe you can put it into the notes for the podcast. But... Yeah, it's of naked ladies and forget me nots. Oh, you the, know it. Okay. Yes. Cool. The stories behind the common names of some of our favorite plants is the subtitle. Yeah. Cause I had it in front of me because I love the name naked ladies for like Horus. I hate when people call them dead soldiers or <laughs> British soldiers. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Oh, I like these naked ladies rising up out of the out of no foliage. It, it's much more descriptive, but of course, <laughs> like Horace, the botanical Latin does the job. Yes, and again, there you go. There are a lot of plants that are called naked ladies. Not a lot, but there are a few that then they're not all like Horace. Um, so that's the reason to know that they are like Horace and not just naked ladies. But and Eva would agree with me, I think, um, maybe Dr. Armitage too. The, these common names are important. They're part of our history. They're part of our folklore. They're part of the way that we use plants. And we shouldn't just forget about them and all become snobby uh, botanical Latin users. You know, the, the point is to become bilingual. And, and it is absolutely well within people's ability to do that. Just very slowly. Don't ask too much of yourself. Learn one or two names of your favorite plants and force yourself to refer to them that way. And if people give you hell about it, um, find new friends. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> As my be, mother used to say. We'll be your friends, Mary. <laughs> We'll be your friends. Um, and I was going to say, and thank goodness for those few plants, and there's many of them actually, that the common name and the botanical Latin are the same. And you're like, yes, (laughs) two for for one. So, I mean, cauliflower, echinacea, but a lot of us call it echinacea as the common name. So Mm -hmm. 
Dahlia is Dahlia is one. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one that's always in my head. And yeah, many of the bulbs, for some reason, and I guess it's from reading bulb catalogs, um, that I would say almost all the bulb families you're using the Latin name already. Yeah, some people say narcissus instead of daffodil, as it is. Um, mm-hmm. but tulips. All you got to do is add that a, right? <laughs> yep. Well, and I was thinking of you know scilla and amaryllis mm-hmm. and all the minor bulbs as well, and yeah, so. That makes it super easy. So I was going to wrap up by asking you a tough question mm. and um, to say maybe what one of your favorite Latin plant names is, because there's a few that are just fun to say. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that just kind of trip yeah. off the tongue. Um, yes. I think um, for some reason, I love the, the uh, name Epimedium. I love the way mm. that comes off the tongue, Epimedium. Um, mm-hmm. And there was there's a cult is it a cult no 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 it's not it's um russian sage which is perovskia and i love to say that um perovskia except for it's now a salvia oh you're joking me (laughs) are we gonna end this podcast with yes (laughs) (laughs) i love i'm gonna say a couple that i love is like hutonia I don't know. I like all the Houtonia and Houstonia, the mm-hmm. HOUs. I just like the way that sounds. And and I also like the ones that are like the CHAEs, the Camiciferous. Camiciferous, the, I like a lot. Yeah, there's just something like sexy about that. So so Camiciferous, there's a great uh, thing with pronunciation. I say Camiciferous, you obviously say Camiciferous. I was listening to an RHS podcast the other day, and I think Matt Pottage, the head of RHS, said, uh, at Wisley, said um chamisiferous now i don't know if that was a britishism or if that was the way it's supposed to be pronounced but i don't know that i could ever change myself from saying chamisiferous so please write in answers on a postcard to (laughs) to kathy's (laughs) dc garden uh podcast let us know how to pronounce that but um, Mm -hmm. do you know do you know the definite on that one kathy well, I go with the hard ch, but there is a whole school of thought that there never was that ch was never pronounced like that back in ancient times. But you know, until Doctor Who sweeps me into his TARDIS and we and we go back for a visit, uh, the book is still open on that. Okay, that that's a good way to leave it. Wow, I can't believe that that is now Salvia Perovskia. Yes, Salvia so- Yangii, <laughs> Russian wow. sage. Wow. So um, I guess I'm, I'm, I wonder if they got rid of the genus altogether or if it's something else. I want to be able to say that occasionally. Yeah, I think, well, we can always, again, fake it till you make it. And, <laughs> and then I was going to end on the note to say, I don't consider myself a vain person, mm-hmm. but I would love to have a plant or family named after me. What do you think about that, Marianne? Would yeah, you like a Wilbur and I, or what would you like? Yeah, I was thinking maybe I will have really made it someday when there's just a small cultivar named after me. That would mm-hmm. be so cool. Um, no, I don't have any aspirations to getting my name on a, spe- a specific epithet, but um, <laughs> I'd have to be tramping around China looking for things right now to be in, in order to do that or breeding uh, breeding uh, hellebores or something, and I'm not doing any mm-hmm. of that. But just you know, something pops up in my garden, and like Pamela Harper has that beautiful um, Aromatalicum, 
named after her, Pamela Harper. And yeah, that that would be fun, wouldn't it? That'd be a laugh. Yeah, it would, it would be nice to have a daylily or a rose that you can point to and say, that's mine. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that would be fun. Uh, we can dream about being that great, right? <laughs> that would be the height of, of plant stardom, I think. We, we can die happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Marianne, for uh, sharing your wisdom on botanical Latin and giving us the argument for labeling and labeling well and any other parting shots. If you're feeling intimidated, just come back to this podcast and I am sure you can catch me out on a ton of names pronounced completely wrong. And if I'm willing to do that on a podcast just to get you to speak mm-hmm. Latin, then you damn well better get started. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's something that it's worthwhile doing. All right. Thank you so much, Marianne. <laughs> Thanks, Kathy. Great to talk to you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Plant Profile Sage Salvia officinalis Sage is a small woody shrub that is hardy from zones 5 to 9. This herb is used for culinary and healing purposes. It has an intense flavor that works well with pork and poultry dishes as well as with winter squash or as a tea. Sage grows best in well-draining soils. It can also do well in a container. Plant it in full sun. Do not fertilize sage. It may grow faster, but fertilizing will result in less flavorful leaves. Snip off the tender tips of each branch in the morning to use them fresh. To store sage for later use, Harvest no more than half the plant about twice during the growing season. Sage is easy to dry by hanging cuttings in a well-ventilated area. You can bind up dried white sage and create a smudge stick to burn for a cleansing ceremony. After a few years, your sage plant will become woody and not taste as good. You can then take cuttings or layer it to start new plants. There are several varieties of sage that are commonly available. One of our favorites is purple sage, which looks lovely in the garden and is an RHS Award of Garden Merit winner. Sage, you can grow that. what's blooming in my garden this week, I took advantage of some of the mild temperatures that we're having right now to get some poppy seeds in the ground. I watched Bree the Plant Lady's instructional video, which was super helpful on how zone six through eight gardeners can plant poppies and have some success with them because 
truth be told, I have just never had success with uh, starting poppies from seeds. So I got a packet from Botanical Interest of these beautiful, amazing gray um, corn poppies and have followed her instructions, which are basically to broadcast the seed on a prepared bed uh, with compost. And that would be at my community garden plot uh, because none of the beds in my home garden would be amenable to poppy seeds now I see. And while I was over there in the plot, I dug up a few radishes. They're still small, but edible at this point. The lettuces are bouncing back, so I think I can get another cutting off them to make a salad sometime next week. And shockingly, the broccoli has developed heads. I don't know when that happened, but sometime over the last chilly couple of weeks under that row cover, we actually have broccoli heading up and maybe even making it to the Christmas table. Happy holidays, everyone. I will see you in the new year. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter by going to anchor.fm backslash Kathy dash gents backslash support for as little as 99 cents a month. You can become a listener supporter and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Another way to support garden DC is to go to washingtongardener.com and subscribe to Washington Gardener magazine. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine. <laughs>